Welcome to Power Problems. My name is John Glazer. My guest today is Sarang Shidore, Director of the Global South Program at the Quincy Institute and a member of the adjunct faculty at George Washington University. Sarang, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, you're the Director of the Global South Program at the Quincy Institute. And broadly speaking, that's um, the category of issues we're going to be talking about today. Can you just start out by talking about how you define Global South? And there's quite a bit of talk about, you know, the semantics of how we label this diverse set of uh, countries. Um, give us a sense of how you think about the definition and, and semantics there. Right. Uh, so just to start off, the Global South program at the Quincy Institute is a new program. We launched it uh, about two weeks back. Uh, and as you said, it covers a vast geography uh, stretching from Latin America all the way to Southeast Asia and even the Pacific Islands. So it does make sense to talk about the term. Um, what does the Global South mean? It's being used in the media more and more. Uh, and uh, there are some uh, imprecisions or uncertainties that uh, may be associated with it. So I think a productive way to think about it is to start uh, off a little bit from a historical uh, perspective, uh, because uh, the, the term, not precisely the term, but the idea of a set of countries uh, that, is, that are different, let's say, from the West, that's another term that we use a lot, uh, really comes about in the era of decolonization. Because, of course, before World War II, you had most of the world, most of Asia and Africa, and, and not Latin America so much, but Asia and Africa directly ruled by one or the other European countries. Uh, a couple of those countries were, in fact, ruled by the United States, but mostly it was Europe. And then you had a very big wave of countries demanding uh, to be free, as is conventionally portrayed, but really people's sort of defining themselves as nations and wanting states associated with those nations. And that process unfolds, you can argue actually starts in Ireland in a sense, but certainly, uh, or even before that, in Latin America in the early 19th century against Spanish and Portuguese rule and Haiti uh, against French rule. But in the modern era of the 20th century, uh, you see it more in Asia, and then a little bit later in Africa. And by the 50s, there's already a strong awareness that there's a set of newly independent states uh, that have been formed or are going to form even more in the coming two decades that have certain demands and needs and are shaped by this common experience of colonialism. And that's what triggers these landmark conferences like Bandung in Indo Indonesia in 1955 or Later, the foundation of an actual organization, the Non-Aligned Movement, 1961. And these articulations that bring together more and more countries as they get freed from European rule uh, have a very clear idea of who they are. They are the formally colonized, they are the economically marginalized, and there's very strongly a justice lens present, uh, that they're demanding the, the rich world, basically the West, Europe and North America, to make uh, good uh, on the fact that there is this huge in inequity in the global system 
and the fact that there's been this experience of racism and colonialism. So there's a, a agenda of justice, speaking truth to power. There's also an agenda of abolishing nuclear weapons and having the UN at the center of global governance that creates a more just world and so forth. So those articulations are very human. They, justice is a lens we keep seeing popping up everywhere, including this country. And that's a sort of a global justice lens, if you will. So that's how the the sort of uh, concept begins. But in time, of course, things change. And uh, these countries have evolved quite a lot since uh, the 1950s and 60s and even the 70s. You're seeing today uh, a lot of these countries that uh, were very poor, for the most part, there were exceptions even then, like Argentina, perhaps. Uh, but but broadly, they were they were they were much poorer. Uh, they were also very uh, newly liberated. Most of them, again, Latin America, a bit of an exception, but Asia and Africa certainly very strong memories of colonialism. Uh, that has receded with time. Those imprints are still there, especially in Africa, but they have receded in certain ways. There's also been an economic uh, shift. Um, many countries, not all, but a number of countries in, this, in these regions, Latin America, South Asia, Africa, and Southeast Asia, have become wealthier, have, have become middle income. Some of them actually, like Chile, are, are comparable to the poorer countries of the EU. Malaysia may also fit that category. Uh, Singapore has pole vaulted to a wealthy country. Uh, the Gulf states, through their oil riches and gas riches, not so much Saudi Arabia, which is actually not that wealthy on per capita terms, but Qatar or UAE, have again reached uh, very high income levels. So exceptions abound. But nevertheless, there is one reality that remains. And I think that's where I come at it in our times. And that's why I call it a geopolitical fact. The global South is a geopolitical fact. And that fact is the, the reality that many of these, almost all of these countries are dissatisfied with where they sit in the power structure of the international system. It's very much a uh, power lens uh, that one can see still survives quite strongly. In some ways, it's become stronger because as some of these countries like Turkey or Malaysia or India of Brazil have become wealthier, have become more confident in world affairs, have become savvier. They feel like they're not actually, they have not entered the core of the global power structure, decision-making, and the way power is, is uh, negotiated. So and that, of course, means the United States and its European core allies uh, or a country, again, in the core alliance system such as Japan, but also means China and Russia, which are great powers. As great powers, they have a certain degree of freedom in shaping the global order. They feel perhaps much less than they, they deserve, but the, the, the raw reality is that great power, being a great power has advantages of certain kinds. That even these middle powers in the, in, in the global south, the term that is now much more commonly used because the old term third world and developing world was seen as uh, pejorative uh, in some form or outdated. So the Global South feels that most, practically all of these countries feel that they may be, yes, middle income, a few even richer, uh, many not so, 
many not so, still quite poor. But all of them want to certainly continue to catch up, most of them. But more important, all of them want to enter the halls of power and play a greater role in decision making. And, you know, that the short shorthand of that is multipolarity. In, in many ways, they would like a multi-multipolarity. This is more than just great powers, you know, saying not just the U.S., but China and Russia, too. It's really more than that. They would like uh, many more centers of power, and including, of course, their own, to start uh, negotiating these uh, terms of how the world is going to be governed or uh, ordered in the coming decades. I want to ask you about the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Um, they met recently. You wrote a few pieces. Um, you wrote in the New York Times, for example, that the prospects of uh, the expand, expanding BRICS um, to include uh, a bunch of other countries is an unmistakable marker of many countries' dissatisfaction with the global order and of their ambition to improve their place within it. But that the guiding principle this time is not idealism, but realism with an unhesitating embrace of national interests and power politics. So I want to ask you to explain those points. First, what's the nature of their dissatisfaction? What are they dissatisfied with? And um, how is their approach this time around more realistic than idealistic? Right. So I said, as I said, when the sort of the origins of, of uh, these set of countries' articulations in the 50s and 60s were very much grounded in the idea of global justice, justice, equity, uh, speaking truth to power, demanding certain uh, goods transfers from the wealthy world, because that was the right thing, uh, demanding peace, dem opposing Cold War. Uh, rhetoric and so forth. Very explicit in the way if you see the Bandung final communiques on an online movement. Now, of course, one can argue that, that that was never entirely the reason these countries came together. But nevertheless, these moral statements really came from a certain a genuine place because these countries had just been freed by these leaders who had fought these struggles on, on these principles and rallied their peoples. Uh, what has changed now is that I'm not saying the justice lens is gone. I think it's still around. As long as humanity will be there, there will be a justice articulation. And that articulation remains. You can see it actually the most obviously in climate uh, conversations, where the inequities based on historical emissions are the most stark and difficult to deny uh, based on the science uh, and so forth. But I think more important uh, in our times is uh, is simply coming from the fact that this is a geopolitical dynamic, and geopolitics most intuitive, intuitively is associated with power. Uh, the fact that these countries want a stake in defining the way the world is run so that they can benefit themselves. They're coming at it mostly or more so from a very national perspective, national interest perspective, uh, they may sometimes continue to use the language of justice. It still resonates, certainly in parts of Africa and, and some other places. But more so, it is about what's in this for me. How do I benefit from the world order? And they're seeing that their goals are not being met by the current world order in substantive ways. And they want a corrective. And that is why the search or the demand signal you're seeing from these uh, parts of the world 
are leading them to say we want to continue participating in current structures of the world order. Indeed, in structures like the World Trade Organization, they would like them to be strengthened. Those are U.S.-founded structures that have now become weaker thanks to U.S. Uh, non-action or measures. They would like them to be stronger. But they're also saying we want some new clubs. And these new clubs don't include the West, don't include the U.S. They're in coalition with what I call the global East, in a way, China and Russia uh, increasingly aligned. And what these countries are saying is we'll work with the global East on issues, issue-based coalitions. BRICS is one classic example of that. They're also bilaterals. Uh, like BRI, uh, where we see advantage in, in, in plugging these shortcomings of the global order, which hasn't delivered, for example, on infrastructure, on investment, on uh, uh, certain issues like the ability of the U.S. to impose very harsh sanctions uh, across the world through its financial hegemony. We would like a world in which there is not that sort of Damocles sword hanging over us, although not deployed always, but it's always a possibility. So de-dollarization, again, a pie, that one is a pie in the sky, perhaps, goal at the moment. But these demand signals are what are resulting in these organizations like BRICS or SCO or uh, indeed uh, other kinds of ways in which these countries are pushing for change. So you mentioned... Uh the specific economic grievances that exist in these groups, you know, with uh, being at the whim of uh, Federal Reserve policy and at the whim of the excessive overuse of economic sanctions and even trying to muscle both friends and enemies alike. And so they see that abuse and they want to kind of push back against it. But the other thing that um, is often mentioned and, and which you have mentioned in some of your writing recently is their insistence on norms of, sov of sovereignty. Um, and I want to ask about a, a kind of wrinkle in that story, because uh, you wrote that a lot of these countries have resisted or rejected the US-led sanctions regime on Russia, which was imposed as a consequence of its invasion of Ukraine. And some of them have even increased their trade with Russia since the war. So how are they balancing these values of, of, of sovereignty here? Uh, they don't like the imposition on their sovereignty that extraterritorial economic sanctions have, but they're reluctant to punish Russia for committing the supreme violation against sovereignty. Yeah, I think this, as I said in my foreign affairs article in the New York Times piece and the nation pieces, uh, this actually speaks to my point about national interests. Because interests and principles sometimes align and sometimes don't. And in, we in the United States know that from our own foreign policy practice. So really, it's these countries also playing the game of power politics. Uh, while they generally, of course, wouldn't like a world where there's violations of sovereignty and invasions everywhere. I don't think really anybody wants that. Certainly not these countries. But I think when it comes down to it, when their key goal is really bettering their place in the global order. And in that effort, Russia is not really an obstacle. If you think about it, there's almost no global South state that I can think of that has a deep rivalry with Russia. There are some with China. 
but with Russia being perhaps, I mean, we can again speculate as to why, but uh, Russia is either a neutral or in many cases aids uh, various things, energy markets, uh, whether it's uh, food, fertilizers and so forth. Also, broadly, Russia is not going to, they don't see Russia as completely dominating them in a way sometimes that they see China and Asia particularly. So, nevertheless, it is a great power. So, its presence and its continuation as a great power in some ways keeps the world more multipolar, allows power to be diffused a little bit. That is in their interest because when you have power diffusion beyond just a single pole, there are spaces for these states to assert themselves better. So, all this outweighs a specific violation, very clear violation of sovereignty that Russia is currently uh, engaged in, invading Ukraine, uh, and uh, explains the silence. Uh, it's not support. It's not full-throated support. No Global South states is saying, wonderful that this is happening. Let's support Russia. Let's send it aid or arms. No, almost nobody that I know of is in that camp. But joining the Western-led sanctions regime, uh, using the bully pulpit to condemn Russia harshly, no thank you. You uh, started to talk there about the different ways that these groupings appear to Russia and China. And they each country kind of deals with these groups um, in a different way and sees its interests differently. So can you talk about the differences between how Russia and China deals with this? So I think this this is where the differentiation comes between the global east and the global south, if I can use again these, these uh, especially the, the term global east. Uh, and the, the motivations are different. Now for Russia and China, it's a fact of life that they're engaged in a very sharp rivalry with the United States. We can debate who is doing what in what theater, but the fact is that there is a sharp rivalry underway. This is, in the case of Russia, certainly a zero-sum game. In the case of China, increasingly so. And their motivations in in joining or in some cases co-founding, the SCO is co-founded by Russia and China and, and a few Central Asian countries. The BRICS is less so. It's a more of a joint um, kind of initiative that started uh, for economic reasons, still is mainly economic. Uh, but their motivation is about, uh, in a way, uh, negating the power and influence of the United States. The less the power the U.S. and its core allies have, the better they feel about it. Uh, the U.S. and its allies had much less power. They would be quite happy with it. And likewise on the other side. This is what sharp geopolitical competition means. Rivalry, security competition, all the elements are there. Global South is not engaged in that. Almost no global South state is in a state of hostility. I mean, you can point to Iran, perhaps, uh, but really outside, and that has very special deep roots of the way the U.S. has really conducted itself and inflated the threat from Iran in many ways. But if you look at practically all other states, they are not in a hostile relationship with the U.S. Many of them are actually close partners of the United States. Countries like India, when it comes to China, are even quasi-allies in the moves that have happened. Uh, 
Vietnam is, is coming closer to the U.S. Singapore is a close partner um, and so forth. The Philippines is an ally, a core ally. So what you have here is not the Global South saying we don't want a world in which the United States is a major, a great power. Uh, they, would, they would prefer that. But they're saying perhaps it's we will rise faster. We will get richer faster if there's a world where there are options and alternative alternatives to what we have today. And they are looking to strengthen those options. Uh, and that's what these plays are about, especially the BRICS. So uh, BRICS itself is already um, has diverse governance models within it. And if it expands, it'll be even more diverse and it includes democracies, autocracies, monarchies, and so on. President Biden is still harping on this democracy versus autocracy rhetoric. Somehow they think this is a winning slogan in some way, despite the fact that it's, I mean, it's obtuse with respect to how the U.S. frequently supports tyranny. Um, and it doesn't accurately describe the political cleavages that we actually see in the international system. Uh, and it doesn't help us diplomatically win over these allies you know, with such a black and white us versus them kind of framing. And as you point out, the very diversity of an expanded BRICS demonstrate that it demonstrates that different governance models need not be, you know, a geopolitical dividing line. Can you talk a bit about that? Just the, the governance models, the way the United States politically tends to talk about these efforts and how that's bouncing off of the real world. Yeah, I think the democracy versus autocracy framing is not only wrong, it's a self-goal uh, for the U.S. First of all, it's patently not in evidence. I mean, just I think by now there's, no, there's not even the necessity to make a lengthy argument against it. I mean, the fact that we had President Biden with the uh, General Secretary of the Vietnamese Communist Party shaking hands behind the statue of Ho Chi Minh was quite telling, I thought, well, perhaps the most interesting image of, uh, of this week. Uh, and of course, the Middle East, there are many, many cases where uh, authoritarian, semi-democratic, or very flawed democracies are embraced. And the reason is very simple. When it comes to foreign policy, human rights and democracy have, have always been marginal to the U.S., uh, grand strategy. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to the big issues, that's a very secondary factor, if at all a factor. So why is it being even employed? Now, that's a whole different discussion. But I think one of the reasons it's being employed is, in many ways, a domestic reason. I think there's America, you know, we here are, are a nation of ideals. There's a, there's a founding uh, idea of foundation. There's an idea of shining city on a hill. There's a idea of progress that's linear, there's idea of freedom that's very core. Uh, and you've had wars for freedom, uh, the civil war uh, for freedom, uh, World War II for freedom, fighting Nazi Germany. Very hard to argue this is a regular rivalry. That It's an extreme case of genocide in, in, in Europe, especially. Uh, so those two experiences have also shaped the American vision as the people see it, that there has to be a moral calling 
for America. It delivers moral goods. And so framing that and what is I see as a, as a really a geopolitical competition about power against China and even Russia has to be portrayed in moral terms. And that portrayal is very important to hold the domestic coalition together in a, in a time when many, country, many people are questioning why are we committed to defend distant countries? Uh, what is the gain? What is the benefit of, of expanding alliances uh, to keep them forever? So forever alliances and forever expansions. Uh, what is the national benefit? It's a national interest-based questioning, unsurprisingly. So the moral argument is very important for domestic audiences. What happens when it arrives in the shores of the global south is uh, kind of a, a shrug and, uh, you know, uh, laughter because everybody sees through it. And nobody really expects that to be operational when the United States comes to town. Now, there may be words exchanged, issues raised, and in very marginal cases where power, the great power competition is not implicated. There may be demonstrations, performative acts uh, in, in certain capitals. But fundamentally, this is not the motivator of American policy and, and states uh, understand that. So I think in many ways it, it creates uh, puzzlement and condescension and actually more than that, because what ends up happening is that there are rhetorical judgments passed on many issues, uh, whether it, you know, certain rights issues, certain issues of elections, which don't have increasingly have less and less of a material impact on these countries. Uh, now, they may be the right things to do. We may agree personally with some of them or many of them, but that's not the point. The point is that those performative actions or actions of scolding or judging create resentments in many of these states that have a very thin skin when it comes to uh, their sovereignty being messed with. They, they, they take great uh, offense. It's also a useful thing for leaders to rally their own people around. <laughs> so this moralist plane opens up spaces for politicians to uh, rally their bases, their coalitions, and actually is not materially productive in advancing some of those rights. If one believes in those rights, as we do in this country, uh, it actually has a counterproductive impact. So in that sense, it's a self-goal. It is not actually practiced. And the extent to which it rallies the domestic audience, I don't think serves the American interest because forever alliances, forever uh, expansions of alliances, I think are a net uh, negative for uh, the American people. So a big part of that, the motivation for the Biden administration's framing of democracy versus autocracy is in the context of great power competition. You know, Don't side with Russia and China, side with us. We're the good guys. Um, and the emphasis on governance models in particular is one reason that you know, that's not a winning strategy in terms of winning over allies. Um, but there are some other reasons too, I think, that so-called global South states are rejecting the kind of Cold War, great power competition model. Um, tell us why they reject that and therefore what the United States should do. How should we change our approach given those facts? So again, a little bit of history. Back in the Cold War days, we had uh, 
what was called then the third world or the developing world, same set of states that, as I said earlier, were, were much less uh, wealthy. They were had uh, less agency. They were also less uh, able to, although they were able to. This is not just about superpowers even then. Even smaller states had some agency. But nevertheless, their choices were more constrained. Today, their choices, and especially those of the middle powers, are significantly broader. Uh, and one of the things they have realized from that era of the Cold War, when that era was marked with so many interventions, John, by the United States, most of all, the coups, uh, the inv direct interventions in Latin America, the coups across the world from Iran to uh, many other countries supporting military leaders like in Pakistan um, has been has not been forgotten. And today, I think global South states are have realized that a new Cold War in the old format, with uh, superpowers uh, interfering at will, will be extremely damaging to their rights. It will not aid their rise. It also violates their sovereignty in many ways. Whether coming from whichever superpower, whichever great power, in this case there are three. So just based on interests again, there is a deep aversion to a new Cold War. It doesn't mean, of course, that all global South states don't want competition between the US and especially China. There, Russia, again, as I said, Russia is not a country based on interests of these global South states, practically all of them not seen in negative light. On China, there are some exceptions in Asia, a few, but they're important exceptions. And their countries broadly are fine with constrained competition between the US and China uh, because they can then play one off against the other. They can negotiate better on, on deals. Uh, but not unrestrained competition, not arms races, not military crises, uh, not, not flirt flirting with uh, war. Those are the kinds of things that we saw in the Cold War. Those would not be welcome by practically any global South state uh, because they know that in such a world, they will be the biggest victims. And certainly, even if they have more agency and power now, their rise will be constrained much more than in a world where there was a certain level of competition uh, and uh, that they, they could then take advantage of these interstitial spaces between the competition. So um, you write that uh, the growing attraction of BRICS is a signal that American global dominance is waning, but that America should view this less as a threat and more as an opportunity. You say it offers uh, a chance for the U.S. to not only relearn the practice co of cooperation, but also to let go of some of the distant burdens and notions of exceptionalism that do not serve its interest. Uh, explain that a bit more. Right. So that was from my New York Times piece a couple of weeks back. Uh, yeah, I think there is, uh, I think we in America wedded to this idea of America as the superpower, the global hegemon. It's a good thing, we tell ourselves, because America stands for freedom. And a world that where America dominates is automatically more free, more prosperous, uh, more safe. 
and we have told this to ourselves ever since World War II. Because in World War II, as Stephen Wertheim has written very eloquently, that was a moment when America stepped out to, in a sense, save the world, if you will, because there was a real specter of totalitarian domination around the world in ways that were clearly inimical to American interests. Hitler's Germany and the Japanese uh, state, uh, if they had won those wars, would have made it difficult for the United States to prosper and flourish. That's not the case today. Yes, you have uh, Russia invading Ukraine, but I think there have been very good arguments made that uh, Russia can cannot conquer Europe. It can barely conquer Ukraine. It may be able to hold some lines in the East and lose a lot of people for a long time. But the specter of Russia dominating Europe, forgetting, never mind Russia dominating the world, is just a fantasy. The specter of China dominating the world is also a fantasy. There is a possibility of China becoming a hegemonic player in Asia. And that's why I think there is a case for an American presence in Asia. America is also a Pacific power in a way that uh, it directly borders the Pacific. We have Guam and so forth in, in ways that it doesn't actually border Europe uh, and certainly not the Middle East. Uh, so there is a case for the United States to be present in Asia, but even then, in what sense uh, should it be present? So these ideas of American exceptionalism, the ideas of American uh, mission, perhaps even a divine mission, to save the world, to dominate the world. Uh, and the idea that this is good for America, which is automatic in many policymakers' minds, uh, is no longer a good thing for America. So the fact that the world is becoming less unipolar in the spectrum from unipolarity to multipolarity to shifting towards the end marked multipolarity. We can debate how far it's shift, shifted, but it's, it's certainly shifting is an opportunity because it's a chance for America to let go of what has become a burden, what has become a millstone around its neck that inhibits America's rise and increasingly corrodes America's soft power and attraction. In the global south, these are countries, again, broadly friendly to the United States, where we should be building up that goodwill, but we are detracting from that goodwill, and we are doing it to ourselves. So let's see, because we know that BRICS is not going to dominate the world anytime soon, if ever. Let's see these creations of alternative institutions and pathways where we are not present as not a threat, as not something to laugh at and just wave away, but to say, okay, this gives us a chance to find a way to remain a leading power, a great power for a long time to come, but not a primacist power, not a global hegemon. How do we adjust to this world that's coming? It's not something we are creating. It's coming step by step. How do we adjust to it in a safe way? Because this is a dangerous decade. Transitions are dangerous times where we can have great power war and it falls upon the US more than the other great powers because it's still the most powerful actor. And, you know, in any rivalry, we, we say it ourselves in the U.S., a more powerful actor, we see a rivalry far away, we say a more powerful actor should take the first step. Uh, there's a chance for the U.S. to take those steps and see what responses they get. And I think in that, the Global South 
if those steps are, are safe and, and, uh, and calibrated, uh, we'd get a lot of support. Uh, I'm tempted to ask you to expand on what those steps are, but I'll do it just in this context because I think what you said is important, right? Because uh, pretty much everyone you talk to in D.C. on strategy says that the way to compete with China and Russia is to meet, match, and exceed what they're doing. Expand our power, expand our alliances, expand our military uh, capabilities, and so on. And what you're saying, I think, if I understand you right, is that understanding the limits of our power and even limiting our own global ambitions is actually not just in our interest, but will help us compete with Russia and China. Is that right? That's right. I think if you think of competition in a positive sense, not in the sense that I want to out-missile China. I want to put even more forward presence, put a Philippine, you know, base, uh, we call them agreed locations now in the Philippines, not bases. So let's call them agreed locations. So put another agreed location in Batanes Island, now even closer to Taiwan, for safety, for security. Is it really safer than to sail ships right next to the Chinese coast in big ways? And that should be the safest thing. I think most people will say, ah, maybe not that far. If not that far, then why so far? Where do we draw the line? Are we actually buying more security by raising our forward presence step by step? AUKUS, Philippines, uh, with Japan rearming. Now, Japan may rearm on its own. That may be fine. But bringing the South Koreans in the room, creating a trilateral, uh, all these are certainly not helping the cause of security and safety because they're causing counter-reactions. The North Koreans are going to Moscow. Uh, if you form a block, there will be a counter-block formed. If you take risky maneuvers, there will be counter-risky maneuvers. Now, of course, the other side starts it too. It's not just the U.S., but the point is this is a cycle. All great powers are engaged in this mutually coupled game that is destructive and especially the global south is watching and most of those countries are saying let there be limits to that i think in this in this uh, quest in this pathway if the u.s chooses to take it i think the signals from the global south are a helpful aid because the global south as a geopolitical fact is sending a signal you want the americans to be the room you may even want the americans to be the most important player in the room for a long time to come but we want other players in the room in a way that aids rise and creates spaces. And in, in that plane, there is ample scope for the United States to compete with China and Russia. And indeed, countries of all kinds competing with each other. Uh, solutions can come from anywhere because we are dealing in a world, you know, living in a world with global problems, complex problems like climate change. And solutions and innovations can come certainly from the United States, still an innovation superpower by far, but can also come from frugal, what's called frugal innovation, from global south states that come up with cheaper ways that are locally tailored. There's a Chinese way, there's a so-called Western way, even there there's a European and American differentiation. There could be ways emerging from Turkey, from India, from Brazil, other places, even smaller countries that may uh, be easier to scale up across the world uh, in some of these cases. So let a thousand flowers bloom because global problems are not waiting for us to get our act together geopolitically. 
and let the United States lead that effort. I want the U.S. to lead this change, not be uh, a victim of it. So is there that kind of leadership that we can see in Washington in the coming, uh, in the near future? I hope so. Well, me too. Uh, Sarang Shidore, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thank you very much, John. Thank you.